Colin is Managing Director of Denki, a company you set up in the year 2000. Um, you've created 180 individual games, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Yep. You've even managed to pick up a few industry awards. Mm -hmm. And I also read that you love um, anything chocolatey, especially Galaxy. Definitely. So it's quite open to bribes. Yeah, so if you want to bribe me, Galaxy chocolate's where it's at. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming along, everybody. It's really good to see everyone. And thanks very much to Richard and to BAFTA as well for setting up this event. It's always really good to get the opportunity to speak to people who are interested in games and interested in sort of a career in, in games. So great that I'm getting the opportunity to do that. As Richard has already said, my name's Colin. I'm the Managing Director of Denki, which is a game development company based here in Dundee. We set up in the year 2000, so about 15, 16 years we've been making games. I've been making games professionally now for over 20 years, which makes me absolutely ancient in this industry, it's fair to say. And during that time, we have, I've prob I have probably worked on certainly over 200 games, actually released over 200 games in that time. And that's everything from console titles right down to sort of things that you would put on, on a watch or a a mobile phone. Not mobile phones as we know them today either. Mobile phones as they were like 15 years ago. Slightly, slightly more restrictive technology, shall we say. Now, of those 150 to 180 games that we made at Denki, probably only about half a dozen or maybe 10 at most we've actually released directly to the public for people to buy. By far the majority of what we do is actually games for other companies. So we've worked with the likes of Disney, Universal Pictures, Paramount, uh, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, all of these big companies like that. So in many ways, the way that we actually make money as a games business is more as a kind of store brand. So you know, you know if, you go into Mark's, uh, if you go into Asda or Tesco or one of these places, you don't actually make washing powder, but you can buy as the wash, washing powder or Tesco washing powder. It's the same thing, they, they don't make it, they go to somebody who makes it and they buy it. So we do a similar, we provide a similar service for companies and especially media brands who, who have games that they want made. One of the games, what we've been working on recently is Crackdown 3. And again, you probably won't hear Denki mentioned when you come across Crackdown 3. It's going to be released next year. It's coming out on Xbox One but it will be reagent games that are the primary developer, that's who you'll hear. But Denki's currently involved in that. We've been working on that for about two years now, doing various things, including design, technology, all sorts. So that's how we function as a business. My own role as managing director, what does that actually involve? Okay. It's probably the least creative role of the entire games industry, right? If there's a, if there's a uncreative role in the games industry, managing director is probably it. Because your job is essentially to take care of all the mundane things that the creative team do not want to have to deal with. But trust me, it's really important that somebody does that. Because if you don't, then somebody has to deal with it and it ends up taking away from the, the creative team. So whether that's contracts, negotiating contracts, finding new customers, whether it's getting people paid, sorting out legals, invoicing, you name it, all that kind of thing is, is the main course of my day. But at the same time, because it's my own company, I sometimes get a chance to actually do what I love most from a creative perspective, and we'll talk about that in a minute. 
So that's where I am today, but I didn't wake up one day as managing director of my own game studio. I, I got into games and my career in games was started very much the way I suspect most people's careers start in games, which is I started playing games. Now, when I was playing games, they looked a lot like this. They certainly didn't look like the kind of things that we're seeing out in the, the hall today, unfortunately. But I can assure you, as somebody who was there at the time, these were every bit as revolutionary and exciting as the games you'll, you'll see today. Because we'd never seen anything like this before. The ability to actually control something on a TV screen was, was really new. I followed right through my schooling. I, I continued to play lots of games, and then it got to go into university. Now, today, we have organizations like Abertay and Nottingham University, University of West Scotland, all these amazing places where you can go and study games. Back when I was going to university, you couldn't really do that. So I ended up studying chemistry with computer science at Harriet Watt. <clears throat> but that's not why I got into the games industry. I got into the games industry because I was a musician. But I was never trained as a musician. I just loved guitars and couldn't stop playing them. So I kind of taught myself. And that, what I was particularly interested in was music technology. So where, where do you apply electronics and computing to the process of making music. That was what I loved. And so when I got to the end of school, I was desperate to go and study music technology. But my family had different ideas, because how do you make a living doing anything to do with music technology? Nobody at that time knew. Remember, this was late 1980s, so it was, it was quite new. So my dad struck a deal with me. He said, if you go and study a course that I have heard of and that I understand, then if you get to the end of that and you qualify, you can go and study music technology. So that was the deal we, we got to. So for three years, I went to Harriet Watt and I studied chemistry with computer science by day. I played computer games a lot at night. And at the weekends, I would play in bands and I would find my friends' bands and record them and mix all their, their music and things like that. So from the outside, for anybody who was a sort of responsible parent looking at what I was spending my time doing, you could pretty much guarantee that I, was, I looked like I was wasting at least two-thirds of my time doing stupid things that would never amount to anything. But unbeknownst to them, and certainly unbeknownst to me, I could not have been using my time more, more productively. Because in 1993, opportunity came knocking. And that opportunity was a company called DNA Design. Now, DMA was the first computer games company that had a huge commercial success right here in Dundee. They made Lemmings, which has really gone on to power the games industry in and around Dundee. So they'd already had their hit Lemmings by the time I got involved, and they had literally mountains of cash, okay? More cash than they knew what to do with. So they were hiring interesting people. And one of the people that they wanted was somebody who had a knowledge of computers, could program, uh, knowledge of music and the ability to combine all that into music and sound effects for the computer game. Now, at that time, even back in 1993, there were plenty of people who could program computers better than I could. There were plenty of people who could write better tunes and music than I could. But there were very, very few people at that point who could program a computer to play a, a tune better than I could. And if there was, then they weren't prepared to move to Dundee. So I got the job. I was probably 20 years old when I joined DMA, surrounded by 
all sorts of gadgets and toys that the, the kind of thing that when I came out of a music technology course I would have loved that job so the ability to get to that job without ever going near music technology courses was an absolute win it really was my dream job and I loved it now I couldn't have joined at a better time and timing is a large part of, of this story I when I joined there was about 20 people at DMA and by the time I left there were about 110 so that growth, if you like, of that business, I got caught up in. I started programming and creating all the music and sound effects for the game, so I was doing that directly. And then as the company grew, I ended up managing their, their studio because they had to hire more people to make sound effects and music. So I was there and kind of by default got the job of finding musicians and hiring them and, and doing all that. So I had to hire them and manage them. Did that for about four years, and then DMA themselves were sold to Gremlin Interactive, who were based in Sheffield. And Gremlin were an even bigger company, so they had even more musicians and more studios. They had, they had a studio in Sheffield, they had one in Wakefield, I think. Uh, DMA had a studio in America. So there was all these different places that I was left with the responsibility for, for looking after the audio. For. And during that time, I probably worked on about two dozen games, I reckon. Now, most of them, you probably won't have heard of, okay? Some of that is because they didn't come out, so they just started as demos and they never actually made it to the light of day. Some of them came out and they came out to universal apathy. Nobody remembers them particularly, but there happened to be one game that I worked on that has, that you will know because it literally has gone on to change the world, and that is Grand Theft Auto. Now, that wasn't something I planned. I didn't expect that to happen. I just happened to be there when this was happening. So I have here the original design document that I got handed in 1995. This was a document I got given. The game was called Race and Chase and they were asking me to do the sound for this game. So I had a look through it and got to the end of the document because it's not very big as you can see. I'll pass it around so you can look. But I kind of had a look through it and I went, there's nothing about sound in here. And the programmer went, yeah, there is, on page eight. And I went, is there? So I got to page eight. I'm like, nope, still can't see anything. So he came across and he went, there it is. Sound, okay, it says, space for sound, samples, etc., will amount to one megabyte. That was the sound design for Grand Theft Auto. So from that, kind of small beginning, we had to figure out how we were going to turn this into something that could be as good as it possibly could. Now, that was no different than we did for every other game that we worked on. It, we did, started exactly the same way, we looked at the game, we looked what it needed to be the best it possibly could, and we just worked through the logical conclusion. It just so happened that Grand Theft Auto really lent itself to an amazing treatment of sound, so we put all the radio stations in, we got the pedestrian comments, shouting thing, all sorts of stuff like that. And almost as soon as we re it was released, you could tell this was something special. The feedback we were getting on it, the, just the comments, the reviews, it got to the point we stopped reading the good reviews, because there were so many of them, we got bored with it. We would only read the reviews that called out for being terrible and so on. It was a, a wonderful moment and I, I cherish it forever. 
That obviously led to Grand Theft Auto 2, because if you've done something successful in, in digital media or in any media company, the next thing they want is the same again, please, but bigger. So we got the opportunity to make Grand Theft Auto 2, and that was really exciting as well, because it gave me the chance to take some of the ideas we hadn't had time to do in Grand Theft Auto and, and try and, and grow that a little bit. And then shortly after GTA 2, in 1999, the company was bought by Rockstar. So Gremlin sold the, the company and, and Rockstar bought them. And we started work on Grand Theft Auto 3. Now, that was the point where I had a decision to make because I'd already been working on Grand Theft Auto for oh, five years at that point. And I could see what they were doing for Grand Theft Auto 3. It was going to be really innovative. But it was going to be really innovative in ways that didn't matter to me because it was going to be innovative in terms of the, the visuals. So it was going to move into 3D. It was going to be innovative in terms of the size of the maps, the worlds, characters, all sorts of things. But none of it interested me. And it was at that point I realized being in the games industry, getting to work on cool projects with interesting people is more important to me than just continuing to play a furrow of things that have already been successful. So I had a really difficult decision to make at that point, but I made it. And that decision was to step out from that role that I could probably have continued in to this day, I suspect, if I'd wanted to, and set up my own company. Because I wanted, by that point, I'd realized that a lot of what goes wrong with audio development games is nothing to do with poor audio development. It's actually to do with badly, bad, bad game development processes. It's, it's actually a bigger problem than just audio. So I wanted to start Denki with this philosophy to say, hey, we're going to actually try and figure out how we can build games in a way that doesn't just prioritize great art or great code or whatever, but actually everything that is important to the, the player. And having Denki has been an amazing experience because it's allowed me to do things I would never have got the opportunity to do as a member of the audio team at Rockstar. I got to make games that I wanted to make. So this was something we released back in 2001. This was Denki Blocks, which today just looks like a casual game. But back in 2001, nobody was making games like these. It was really innovative. Again, something that excited me. We used to get calls from people saying, or we get reviews saying, that's a Japanese company, Denki. Right? Oh, Kellen or like, hey, this is great. You know, we carry on that we're a Japanese company. Um, and then more recently, in 2010, we had the, the idea for this game, Quarrel, which mashed together word games and strategy games into this thing where you make words to take over territories. Now, that is something that, it's, to my mind, that is the best game I have ever made, right? In 200 games that I've made, including Grand Theft Auto, Quarrel to me is the pinnacle of what I've managed to achieve as a game developer because there's so much, it's so rich and there's just the detail in it and the, the kind of beauty of the concept and the way it works. There's so much that I love about it. And again, I would never have got the opportunity to do something as, as innovative as that had stayed where I was. It's also given me the chance running a company to look at the creative process itself. And every day I get more and more fascinated with the creative process because I see it around me. And I hear all these people talking about the black arts of, of creative development. And what I take from people saying the black art of creative development or creative process is that people don't understand it yet. It doesn't mean it, it, doesn't mean it can't be understood. It just means we don't understand it yet. 
because 100 years ago we could have filled this room with people who would have told you that, that electricity was magic or magnetism was magic. But there were people who were dedicated to figuring out what was actually going on so they could harness it and apply it to creating new and better things. So that's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm interested in and one of the reasons that I, I love being in a place like Denki. It's also given me the chance to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with some huge companies. We've done deals with just about every, every big media manufacturer you can think of, sometimes for millions of dollars, and that's just, that's just genuinely exciting. I, I've never had the chance to do that. It's kind of cool. Turns out I don't enjoy it that much, to be honest. It's that, the, the kind of glamour part of that I don't like, but it was nice to get the opportunity to find that out firsthand rather than having to take somebody else's word for it. So enjoyed it, but it's not what I'm about. But more importantly, and something I really do enjoy, is this kind of thing, where I get the opportunity through organizations like BAFTA to talk to people who want to learn about the, the craft of making games and how you do it. Because that, to me, is the really exciting part of it. And it also gives me a, a, an inroads into government as well to advise on how we can organize our policies and, and and those sort of things to make sure that the next generation of people who are coming into the games industry have a better start and, and have a better infrastructure. Because when we were starting to make games, literally you had to, people wouldn't believe you when you said you made games for a living. It's like, nobody does that. So, but now you turn up and you say you want to make computer games and people are really excited and they understand what that means. Again, had I stayed at Rockstar, I would probably not have had the opportunity to do that. So if I had to summarize my own journey through, through the games industry, it's probably just been the itch to explore, I guess. Every time I find myself someplace where I understand it too well, I want to get on and, and, and do something else and, and find. Because games, interactive media, all that area, is just so exciting. There's so much to learn, and it's a completely undiscovered country. You're always finding out new things. So you get the opportunity to move into games, I would thoroughly encourage it because it's genuinely really exciting. And with that, I'll hand you back to Richard. Thanks Colin, that was, that was really interesting. So it was interesting you saying about um, uh, your parents saying, mm. if you go and do a course that I recognise, then I'll let you go and yeah. you know, sort of follow your dream. I mean, my parents still don't know what I do for a living, so there you I, go. I, I swear my parents probably still don't know. If, I, if you ask my dad what I do for a living, he'll tell you I work with computers. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's like saying I work with chairs. It's like it's, there's <laughs> no information in that statement. So. Would you say that attitudes are changing, though? You know, speaking oh, to your contemporaries who have yeah. children or young adults now um, that they've brought up, do you find that attitudes are changing to your industry? Without a doubt. And, I remember when we first joined, you could see there's, there's a line that's someplace, it's somewhere around my age, I think. People who are older than me, there's probably a predominance of people who don't play games. People younger than me, there's a predominance of people who do play games. And by the time you get down to, gentlemen here, to, to your sort of age, pretty much everybody your age plays games, right? Boys and girls, a little bit less, yeah. But, but more or less, it's the norm, right? And I remember saying that at the time to, to people to say, nobody comes up to you now and, and asks, do you watch films? Like, of course I watch films. Who doesn't watch films? Do you watch television? You know, yeah. it's, just, it's a meaningless question. It's like saying, can you count to four? Like, of course yeah. I can. But now it's, it's changing. You feel that. Good. So when young people, um, are, or predominantly young people, are coming into your, your business, um, 
I mean, do you see sort of the road that they've taken? What I mean, what what advice would you give to people here uh, who want to get in, into the industry? What, what road should they follow? Make things, make as much as you can, because that's how you learn in the games industry. It's it's a practical craft. You don't learn about games by reading about it. You don't learn about games by thinking about it. You learn about games by doing it, getting it wrong, making mistakes, making crap games, right? You can do nothing better for your career than make lots of crap games, because that's how you learn. So when somebody comes, if I'm hiring somebody, for example, I learned pretty quick to be very wary if somebody turns up and says, oh, I love computer games, I really want to work in, in the games industry, I've, I've played games my whole life, blah, blah, blah. And the question that sorts them all out is, show me what you've made. And if the answer to that is, well, nothing. Like, well, you don't love games that much then, do you? Because it's, it, it would be like asking a, a woodworker to say, show me the bowls you've made, you know? Uh, anybody who's passionate about their craft will have something. It's not always good, but that's not important. It's, it's, the, it's the trying that's, that's important. So just open up to the floor in a minute, just lastly, um, so somebody might be at home making their games and so on, mm. how did they actually get exposure to that? Is it, is it through the internet or what would you say? Yeah, again that's completely changed in the time that I've been involved in games. When I was learning to program games, the only way you could do it was magazines, really. So, so you were literally waiting on a month-by-month -month basis for, for the latest magazine to come out with a listing or find out what, what people were talking and, and people would talk, so you'd find clubs and stuff like that. But now, with access to the internet, you know, free tools, the ability to download tools that will let you make games, sites like Scratch, um, you, all, all these tool, learning tools, there's just so much out there. If anything, the difficulty is picking which ones to use that best suit yourself. And how do you get your peers or you know, people like you to actually say, oh, that looks good, um, I might be open to that person, come and have a conversation with me or... Yeah, well, there's a, few, there's a few different ways. Personal recommendation is always the best, the, the best way of doing it. But there's the old Steve Martin quote about too good to ignore. There are no end, there's no end of places like Dare to be Digital, you know, ProPlay, these game maker fairs, all sorts of things, where you can get exposure, not necessarily to people who are already in the business and looking to hire, but you can get exposure to your peers. And once you get a name within that circle, circles, then it, it just, it builds step by step. There's, there's, no, there's no quick shot magic bullet that, that I'm aware of, mm -hmm. but you can see the people who just diligently, year after year, go at it and, and plough their own power. So it's really not just fun. about playing games, it is actually hard work. It's not just about playing games, but I would say one thing, which is playing games is part of it. Good. So when your parents say to you, stop playing games, uh, it's not the best advice. Good, good. You heard it here first. <laughs> right. So I was just going to finish up by asking you um, if there's a bit of advice, of advice that you could give your younger self. A bit of advice for my younger self? A <laughs> bit of okay. advice for your younger self, what would that be? Or what, what would you say to your younger self, given the situation you are now, not to worry about that you maybe spent too much time worrying about? Oh, I think that, that thing I was talking about before, and that failure is going to happen at some point, it's not the end of the world, get over it. And stop worrying about it and 
don't let that be the reason that you don't take an opportunity that you you might regret. So, yeah, fail fast. <laughs> Sounds like good advice to me. So good. Well, thanks very much, Colin. Thanks very much, Roger. Cheers. Thank you.